Okay, everyone, if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 13, we'll be there in a few minutes. I feel like I'm the bearer of good news today, I'm not sure. I uh, hope you enjoy some of these decisions we've made. Uh, we, we let this information out slowly, and I think most of you got it through the e-news, and then put it on the website yesterday. But today, right after the live stream from 12 to 3 o'clock, we're going to have kind of what we're calling Calvary Park on our campus. It's mostly a prayer walk where people can come out and park and walk around our loop. Uh, people can like tailgate in the parking lot. I don't mean tailgate like at an Eagles game with food, but just to meet people you haven't seen in a while. We're going to social distance. We're going to wear face masks. Believe it or not, right before I came on, we have people outside already watching the live stream. Uh, very cool. So if we could space out over three hours, most of our staff is here. We can't wait to see you guys. And then my second announcement is, uh, we will do church here in May. That's almost a guarantee. Now, I don't know the date. Uh, that's not in our control. But let me tell you some of the things we're processing and actually working hard on right now. Uh, we really feel like we're going to come back sizzling summer style. What does that mean? For those of you uh, who have only been around since September, we do an outdoor service called Sizzling Summer. Uh, we have all the infrastructure to do it and do it well, a big screen. And we feel like to come back outside, you can social distance as far as you want. You could stay in your car, roll the windows down. Uh, you could sit out on the basketball court if you want. So we feel that's the safest way to come back. We're also working on Cafe Church, which might be uh, 50 or 60 people in our cafe meeting a Saturday night upstairs in our chapel. Believe it or not, we're even wondering if God is saying this is the time to start the extension campus on the other side of Delaware County. So... There's a lot of things going on. We're working hard because it takes weeks to prepare for this type of thing. Even when we come inside, we think we can still live stream the service out on the big screen for, the, uh, big screen for people that want to sit out on the lawn. So remember, whenever we do start, we're going to tell people who are in compromised categories, people that are sick, or even those who are fearful, keep watching the live stream. One thing I want to remind everybody, uh, church will look a lot different. I know when we come to church, we think, wow, it's packed. This feels really good. The goal now will be to be smaller. And the last thing I'll say on that, for those of you who are uh, watching the news or looking at state guidelines, uh, the church is not under state jurisdiction. We're going to try and follow all those rules the best we can. But the right to assemble is federal. So I've been looking at Florida websites, and I just looked at the PA website, and way down at the bottom it lists churches, and there's a key word in there. It's the word consider. Churches should consider. So we're going to consider everything. We're going to look at safety, uh, but we feel like we'll be back in May, and uh, if you were all here, I think we'd hear an applause. So we'll have to get an applause track going for the future. Um, one last thing I want to share uh, I talked about building Guate. We just got back from Guatemala, and I shared that when you're in Guatemala, the people at Land of Hope, what they eat for one meal a day, we would never consider eating. Uh, can you imagine what the pandemic's like? So we sent um, money down to them last week, and I wanted to read for you what they sent me, and me using technology on a Sunday morning is not good. But I think I can navigate this. Uh, over the last six weeks, they've fed 50 families daily from the Land of Hope kitchen. 400 food bags were given out. Uh, seven people have accepted Christ. Remember, they're sheltering in place, although they're 
cases are small because they're following us. No stimulus checks, no government bailouts, uh, very difficult situation. Uh, as the pandemic continues to spread to already fragile places, the poorest and marginalized face increasing difficulties. Uh, Guatemala, obviously their economy's been hitting hard and they appreciate uh, all that we have done and donors have done. So God is good. He's working uh, around the globe. All right, John chapter 13. Let's read from verse 18. I think we'll put the verses on the screen for you. Jesus said, I do not speak concerning all of you. He has just washed the disciples' feet. I know I have chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes to pass that you might believe that I am he, that he is in italics. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whoever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives, receives him who sent me. And when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled or vexed in his spirit. And testified and said, most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, verse 22, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table, none of the disciples knew that it was Judas, but they thought Jesus had sent him away for the feast. He had the money bag and buy those things for the feast or something for the poor. And having received the piece of bread, Judas went out immediately. And John adds this piece of information, and I don't think it's insignificant. He said that it was night. John has this whole theme about light and darkness. Nicodemus comes at night. He comes by stealth, not to be seen. And now John tells us this final Passover, it's night. And night is a sign of evil. Darkness is raging. Jesus' betrayer is there. The garden of Gethsemane is ahead of him. Uh, before Pilate, he will die on a cross. And John, the one thing he remembers is that it's night. When I began this study in John, I called it Encounters with Jesus. Because John gives us something we don't see in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He gives us these one-on-one -on -one conversations that Jesus had with ordinary human beings like you and me. And, and we get a front row seat into things that we would have never heard, these intimate conversations. It begins way back with uh, Jesus' first miracle with his mother, this tender exchange at a wedding where she tells Jesus they run out of wine. And Jesus said, well, what does that have to do with me? And yet he turns the water in the wine, and John, writing so much later, records this was Jesus' first miracle. This was his glory coming out. And it really sets the stage for his ministry where Jesus didn't come to patch up Judaism or patch up the old way. He came to unleash the Spirit, new wine, torrents of new and living water that would come out of human beings. In John chapter 3, there's this meeting with Nicodemus. I mentioned he comes at night. 
And this is a virtuous man. This is one of the leaders of Israel. He's noble. He's righteous. The teacher in Israel by Jesus' declaration. And Jesus walks him through this wonderful born-again experience where Nicodemus, you know the Old Testament. You know Ezekiel, that God would take out that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. That there would be new wine and these bones would live. I look at the pool of Bethesda. When I taught on that in John chapter 5, I shared it was one of my favorite places to visit in Israel. Because I look at that man and he's like so many of us. Jesus said, do you want to be made well? And instead of saying, yeah, Lord, that's why I'm here. I want to be made well. He's a man of excuses. How many of us, we have all these excuses why we can't do this or why we can't do that. And does God love us? And, and yet Jesus heals him. But now we get to this final night, and there's these three encounters that I find so intriguing. One with Judas, the betrayer, a man who walked with him for three years, knew all of his teachings, saw all the miracles. There's going to be an encounter with Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate's going to ask Jesus, what is truth? Are you the king of the Jews? Don't you know I have the power to crucify you or to set you free? And then, we forget this, two thieves upon a cross that Jesus will have interaction with. And we have to get this into our headspace. These individuals are talking to God. We have to remember that. That's John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. These people were talking to God. And in a few verses, Jesus is going to make his greatest I am declaration. He's going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Almost everybody's heard that. And if you think about that claim, it's almost absurd that a human being would ever say that. That Jesus would basically say, I'm the way to God, not a way to God, the way to God. And he kind of, you know, solidifies that by saying, no one comes to the Father but through me. The exclusivity of what Jesus was about to do and the gospel. He said he was the truth of God, the life of God. Truth, by definition, has to be exclusive, right? Truth, truth has to be right. It can't you know, maybe be right, we don't know if it's right. Truth has to be exclusive, it has to be right. This is why C.S. Lewis said Jesus would either have to be a liar, a lunatic, or who he claimed to be, that he was Lord. And what we're going to find as we look at this betrayal of Judas, when we look at Pilate, the thief on the cross, is that these people were so close to the truth. Sometimes we succumb to the lie that, you know, Finding Jesus is like finding a needle in a haystack. Or what about the people that have never heard? We hear all these arguments. Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. And uh, I read Rob's book. He's smart. He's creative. I, I think he's arguing for the universality of salvation that sooner or later everyone will be saved. And he has a clever title in his book called What If the Missionary Got a Flat Tire? And uh, you look at that and you think, yeah, uh, is it really dependent on us until you realize that if God is transcendent, that if Jesus is the only way, if there's no other name under heaven which one can be saved, then this transcendent, all-powerful God would have to find a way to make truth available to every human being. No one was closer to the truth than Judas Iscariot. Three years with Christ, and in a moment I'm going to share with you at the Last Supper, that he was actually the closest person to Christ. When people talk about unreached people groups, what about the people that never heard? One of the things I always share is, you've heard. Forget about all the other people. God will figure that out. The judge of the earth will do right. 
you have heard, and what are you going to do with truth? One day I was meditating upon this. I really never read this anywhere, just thought of it somewhat on my own, that when Jesus gave the disciples the Great Commission, it was daunting. The gospel is going to begin in Jerusalem, then it will go to Judea, Samaria, and oh, by the way, the ends of the earth. Now, Jerusalem, I think they could understand. These are people that had no money, no power. They were a small Jewish sect. But they could get their arms around Jerusalem, maybe Judea. They didn't even like the Samaritans, so that was difficult. And the ends of the earth, Greece, Rome, England is just a fledgling state at this time. But you know where the ends of the earth were? The Americas, where you and I live. They didn't even exist, wouldn't exist for 1,800 and some years. Staggering to think about. So in some ways, for those of us who follow Christ, we are the ends of the earth. God reached us, and now the gospel goes from us to other unreached people groups. Judas, Pilate, the thief on the cross, were closer than anyone imagined, yet so far away. Paul told the Athenians, God is not far from any one of us. The truth's all around us. So we're going to look at Judas today. The scene is the upper room. It's Passover. I received several emails this week, so uh, you guys are tracking and you're studious. Someone asked, how could it be Passover when Jesus was the Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, and he would die on Friday? It's a great question. Well, it's somewhat like your birthday's on Friday, but you have plans, so you celebrate it on Thursday. That's one <coughs> possibility. The other is, there is reasonable scholarship that Galilean Jews, which 11 of the disciples were, celebrated the night before. Whatever it was, this was their final meal. The Bible tells us they were celebrating the Passover meal. And Jesus, it says, after supper was finished, washed their feet. We went through that. He taught them about discipleship. He taught them about servanthood. But then, verse 21 says, he was troubled or vexed in his spirit. It's so important. Because later, when he begins to teach them after Judas leaves, he's going to tell them, let not your hearts be troubled. The same word. You believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. He's trying to comfort them, yet at this point, his spirit's troubled. Why? Because his friend, his disciple, the one he had chosen, Judas, is about to betray him. Now, when you and I hear Judas, we think, oh, the betrayer. Judas, this man who made the worst decision in all human history. Jesus even said, it was better if this man would have never been born. But one of the things we're going to discover as we walk through Judas is that betrayal and belief is never outward. It always begins in the heart. And, and it comes from the heart and it flows outward. Uh, when we look at Judas, there was nothing about him that would give any hint that he would betray Jesus. The disciples were perplexed. Number one, that anyone would betray Jesus, let, Jesus, let alone it would be Judas. You know, Matthew tells us they went around saying, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Each and every one thought they could have been the possibility. Uh, when Jesus said, you know, one of you is going to betray me, they didn't all stand up and say, aha, we knew it all along. You know, Judas didn't look like a Bond villain, right? He didn't have slick black back hair. Uh, they didn't come to Jesus and say, you know, he's been talking about behind your back all this time. You know, he's been dipping into the box. John said, no, we figured this out later. He was young. He was patriotic. He was zealous. 
for the restoration of Israel. And so no one really knew that he was a possibility. In fact, uh, many scholars believe he may have been older than the other disciples. He may have been smarter than them. Jesus gave him control of the finances. And think about this. He was with Jesus in good times and bad times. In John chapter 6, which is a great parallel of this chapter, uh, it says many stopped following Jesus. Many walked away when he said, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And Jesus said to the 12, are you guys leaving too? And Peter said, no, only you have the words of eternal life. Jesus, Judas stayed with Jesus through this time. Judas, at the Last Supper, was closer to Jesus than anyone could possibly be. And I want to show you through this um, the seating arrangement. So I think we have a slide that will show you uh, how they ate the Last Supper. Now, apologies to Leonardo da Vinci. It's a beautiful painting, but that's not how it worked. They sat at a triclinium, this U-shaped table, and they had no chairs. They reclined at this table. Uh, if you look at the flip chart here, this is a triclinium. And uh, we know where four of the people would have sat between Matthew and John. Uh, we know Peter is over here. This is the seat of the servant. And the reason we know that is because when Jesus washed their feet, uh, Peter was aghast. Lord, no, th that should have been my job. Servant would have sat here. And Jesus said, no, uh, Peter, you have no part in me. Uh, we know Jesus sat across from Peter because they had this conversation, and Jesus was the host. Remember from Matthew and Luke, he had set the whole night up? We know John is here to the right of Jesus because he's leaning on Jesus' breast, and you always... Uh, would lean to your left. And then we know J Judas is on the other side of Jesus because he said, he who dips the sop with me is the one. Jesus was the host. Judas was in the place of what was called the honored guest. And no disciple thought that was out of place. Judas being the honored guest that night, no one had any problem with it. Jesus giving Judas to the last hour every chance to repent. The love of God is available to your final breath. God's closer than you think. He was close to Judas. He's close to each and every one of us. I have marveled, and I'm sure you have, time and time again, when you present the gospel in a clear and compelling way. Or maybe you take someone to church or a gospel presentation. Maybe it's a movie. Maybe there's a potter with a wheel or sight and sound in Lancaster. And the presentation is so compelling. Have you ever felt that desire where your heart's beating in your chest, where you want to give your life to Christ again? And yet the person you brought is looking at their phone. They're, they're going to the bathroom. They're not even interested. And uh, in some way you want to become a Calvinist, right? That God does choose some people and chooses over some people. The truth is all around us, guys. God has a way to get truth to people. Several of us are watching the Michael Jordan Last Dance, the episodes on Sunday night, about the years of the Chicago Bulls. And Phil Jackson, who was their coach at that time, last week in the documentary, talked about his parents were actually ministers. Talked about the rapture and talked about going to church as a child. I've heard Brad Pitt talk about growing up in, in an evangelical home. All the conversion stories I've ever heard 
you know, people have told me, and it's been my experience, that they were exposed to the gospel so many times, but couldn't remember all those exposures until the last time. A transcendent God will find a way to get truth to us. And again, I marvel at conversion stories. It's one of the first questions I ask people when I'm getting to know them, and I've heard it all. I remember this uh, executive, really bright guy, wealthy, um, and said, sir, how did you come to Christ? Love to hear your story. And he said, uh, Bob, many years ago, do you remember Jim and Tammy Baker? Uh, I slipped one day and called them Jim and Tammy Faker. Uh, but for those of you who can remember them, like she had puffed up hair and the mascara and, you know, they had this show and it's like you, we would watch it and cringe and yet an executive watched it and he comes to Christ. I share with you on two different continents people that have gotten saved reading the exact same track. Messages in bottles, preaching, uh, normal conversion experiences. God will find a way to bring truth. Truth was available to Judas. It's available to you and me. If you're watching today, it's available to every one of us. The question becomes, was Judas ever saved? You know, it's popular today, I guess because of the internet, to listen to deconversion stories, worship leaders or pastors who once believed and now say they don't believe, and that's not new. Charles Templeton, years ago, a famous evangelist, wrote a book called Farewell to God. That's been going on forever. But the question is, were these people ever saved? Now, listen, salvation is in the, in the mind of God in the heart of people. But when Jesus taught the parable of the soils, he said, if you don't understand this parable, you can't understand any of the parables. And in that parable, he gave conditions where People accepted the gospel that only one type of heart, one type of hearer, produced fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. In Luke's gospel, it's the only uh, place recorded, he talks about the seed sowed on hard soil are those where Satan comes, listen, immediately and steals the word out of their heart lest they believe and be saved. So the parable of the soils is about salvation. So I believe Judas was never saved. John chapter 6, 64, uh, where many of the disciples left, but the 12 stayed, Jesus said, I have chosen 12 of you, and one of you is a devil. Jesus, in his foreknowledge, already knew what Judas would do, and he quotes Psalm 49 here. Now, does that mean Judas was a puppet? Does that mean Judas is a character on a grand stage? No. Does that mean Judas isn't responsible for his actions? No. What it means is God has foreknowledge. God knows those things that will happen before they come to pass. But in his love and grace, he chose Judas. Now, this is where Calvinists uh, want closure, right? So they've come up with this idea of tulip, which stands, it's an acrostic. The T is the total depravity of man. The U is unconditional election. L is limited atonement, I is irresistible grace, and P is the preservation of the saints. And the idea is in this nice little box, you know, God chooses some and he doesn't choose others, but Judas doesn't fit in the box. Because Jesus said he chose Judas. Why was that grace not irresistible? Why was G Judas free to choose away from God? When we look at God's foreknowledge and man's responsibility, we're going to struggle for all of time. 
I want to tell you what Charles Spurgeon said, and everybody's copied him since. He was so eloquent, he had a brilliant mind. Uh, we'll put it up on the screen, this famous quote. He said, if I find it taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, then it's true. And if I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these truths can never contradict each other. I do not believe they can ever be welded into one upon any earthly anvil, but they certainly shall be one in eternity. In other words, we're going to find out in heaven. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them farthest will never discover that they converge. You're going to get a giant headache. But they do converge and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God whence all truth does spring. You will be able to ask God in heaven how all this worked out. But give up for now. It's a paradox. Jesus chose Judas. Judas chose to walk away. Now, another question is, why did he follow Jesus at all? Well, think about it. He was chosen. You know, we know how John and Peter were chosen. We don't know how some others were chosen, but we know he was chosen. And Jesus taught with great authority. This is a man who loved Israel. He was zealous for the restoration of Israel. He saw the miracles. He saw the authority. Uh, he followed Jesus for all the right reasons. And yet he began to drift, and I think that drift started years before his betrayal. Why do people drift? In the parable of the soils, Jesus told us why. The cares of this life, you know, you begin to follow Christ, and all of a sudden, everything else is important. Career is important, and money is important. Jesus talked about the deceitfulness of riches being like weeds and thorns. Uh, I'm going to add another one, human suffering. It's one of the hardest things to defend as a Christian. Uh, in this pandemic right now, there's probably millions of people saying, if God's all-powerful, if he's all-loving, if he's good all the time, why are people dying? Why are people suffering? It's a great question. Uh, the problem is God's ways are higher than our ways. And the way people frame it up is, okay, if God's all-powerful and he doesn't stop the suffering, then he's not all-good. And if he's all good and he doesn't stop it, then he can't be all powerful. And again, that sounds clever, it sounds logical, it sounds rational, it's just not true. Because there's another option out there that a transcendent God could have a reason why it's continuing. When the Israelites were in Egypt, they were there for 400 years. Why didn't God stop it at 40 years, 120 years? 250 years. God had a reason, and again, those things will converge in eternity. My wife Monica and I were sitting around the fire in the pandemic, and we were talking about our youth group. Uh, in the early years, we were part of youth ministry. Our kids were growing up. For the better part of probably 17 years, we were highly invested in youth, Youth were at our house, and we went to camps with them and missions, and we were just lamenting the fact that those who have drifted and not gone on to follow Christ, at least not now, and then others who never come back or write emails to thank us and say what a wonderful time they had. And you look at those youth groups and you think, why did those kids follow Christ? Well, think about it. Um, some of these things happen in the summer around campfires, and you know, you get caught up in a moment. Some people thought maybe following Jesus was cool. 
They saw other people getting baptized. Um, maybe the cares of the world hadn't caught up with them yet. Judas, in my estimation, in the beginning was intrigued by the person of Christ, but a slow fade began. He began to be disillusioned when he heard Jesus talk about the poor will be blessed. It's the meek that are going to inherit the earth. That foxes have holes and birds have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. More and more Jesus was talking about death and going back to the father. And Judas is starting to see, you know, the handwriting's on the wall. This isn't what he signed up for. And he hides it outwardly. No one knew. But inwardly, he's disillusioned. I remember when I became a Christian, we, our first church was a word faith church. One of these Churches built on prosperity and healing and so forth. And that church was a great church and it folded after three years. And there were people shipwrecked, never came back to church. Uh, we were in another church the next week and so were others. And so you see this disillusionment and it really brings out that I believe these people never had traction. They never committed. There was never a vow. John 6 is a great parallel chapter because Jesus makes it clear that he's looking for full devotion. See, that's what it's all about. God's not looking for anything else but our hearts. From the time I got saved till this day, Jesus has been the center of my being. Now, I don't always live that out. I struggle. Other things, you know, sit on the throne of my heart at times. But Jesus has always been the center. And that's all that God's looking for. He's faithful. But every once in a while, I think we should take our spiritual temperature. We should say where we are, where we are with him. Where are we in the relationship? Hebrews says that, that there's, this, there's this tendency to drift. And we need to keep short accounts with God. The beautiful thing is, you know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't quench a smoking flask. He loves us. And he's always there for us. One of the things I want to bring out in this message is that Judas could have always been forgiven. Forgiveness was always available. You think about it, what Peter would eventually do is not as heinous, but it's pretty strong. He's going to deny Jesus three times. He's going to curse uh, about following Jesus. He's going to go back to fishing. But whereas he is repentant, Judas was only remorseful. Judas takes the 30 pieces of silver, he throws it to the ground, he winds up hanging himself because he has a guilty conscience. But Peter longs for restoration. Judas at any time that night and even in the garden could have cried out for mercy, could have changed his mind, could have gone the other way. When he leaves that night, Jesus instills communion. He takes the bread and the cup and he says, this is what you're going to do in the future, in remembrance of me. He waits till Judas is gone. Paul says in Corinthians, every time we take communion, we should examine ourselves. It's healthy for us. Now, I don't think we need to examine ourselves to the place where we're walking an altar every week, making sure we're saved. I don't believe that at all. But I do believe in short accounts with God. Because we drift and the cares of this world come upon us, but not to a place where it chokes out the word of God to the place where we never bear fruit. The last point I want to bring out 
is the point of privilege. Judas had the privilege of seeing every miracle. He heard every teaching. He walked with Jesus. He heard the small talk. He heard about prophecy. He was one of 12. And he wasted it all. When Mary, full of devotion, broke the alabaster box of spikenard and anointed Jesus for burial, he said, what a waste. And yet his life was a waste. A man called by God, close to the truth, who could have written books of the Bible, could have traveled and been a missionary, could have seen the blind have their sight and the dead raised. The last thing we hear of him is that he died and his entrails came out. In the list of the apostles, in all the Gospels, he's always listed last. And again, Jesus said it would have been better if this man had never been born. The Bible says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, I believe in the preservation of the saints. I really do. I believe what I committed to Jesus, he's keeping for the final day. Romans 8 is what I'm living by that there's not pearl or sword or pandemic, <laughs> I'll add that for this season, or anything that will separate me from the love of Christ. What I've committed to Jesus, he's holding till the final day. I'm going to endure to the end because I know I've been saved. We're going to endure, but we're going to work out this salvation with fear and trembling. We're going to let God work in us. My greatest takeaway from Judas and even Pilate and the thief on the cross is that people are closer to the truth than we think. And even though Jesus has been assumed in the heaven, people are still closer to the truth than they think. And the reason they're closer to the truth than they think is because they're close to us. Wherever you go, you bring the love of Christ with you. You bring the tabernacle of God with you. If you're sitting in a cubicle, the person next to you is as close to Christ as Judas, Pilate, and the thief on the cross was. In your family, wherever we go, we take the gospel with us. Blessed are the feet of them who bring good news. You are the God people are looking at, the God they are longing for. They are so close to the truth, and God will bring it to them. And then like every human being that's ever lived, there's a decision to be made. If you're far from God today, if you're struggling, if you think you've disappointed God, listen, mercy and grace is available. Judas heard Jesus say, every sin of man will be forgivable. Even cursing Christ, the only unforgivable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. To look at salvation, the free gift of God, and turn away. I mentioned Saul a few weeks ago the first king of Israel, who starts out so strong, but by the end, like Judas, he was slipping. And he's told to go and to kill the Amalekites. God tells him, don't spare animals, don't take a bounty, just kill everything. And, Saul, and Samuel comes to him and he said, you know, what have you done? And he said, oh, I've just taken a little of the spoil. And, and listen to this, because I'm going to sacrifice it to God. That's always the excuse. You know, the reason I bought this big house I can't afford is because I'm going to have a lot of Bible studies, right? And Samuel's words are so penetrating. God doesn't want sacrifice. We saw that way back with Cain. He doesn't need sacrifice. He's longing for obedience. 
He's longing for relationship. He's longing for you. And so if you feel far from God, listen, repentance is available like it was for Peter. If you don't know Christ, repentance is available until your dying day, you are in the honored seat. You are the apple of God's eye. And like Pharaoh's heart that was hardened, and like Judas who had a slow drift, God's not far from any one of us, and his love is always available. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that you have not only given us your word, God, you've given us a way back. There was an angel and a sword put in the garden. There was no way back, but Jesus made a way. Through his blood, through the cross, there is an open path. We have an entrance into your throne room. God, we thank you for forgiveness. Lord, keep us until the final day. God, bless everyone wherever they are, whenever they hear this. And we give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.